0: If you'll join me in uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look this morning at verses 18 through 25. And the title of our sermon is Born to Die. Our key words for our worshipers in training are son, Emmanuel, and born. And if you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find the text on page 807. Now, for those of us who are uh, parents, We've all probably at some point had that moment with our children after they were born. For me, it was always in the middle of the night when I just wanted to go to sleep trying to convince myself it's not always going to be this way. I wonder what this little child is going to be like. What will their personality be? What will they be interested in? What kinds of things are they going to do in their life? And it's fun to imagine all of the possibilities and to be excited about what's to come. Now, most likely, parents aren't looking at their baby child and and caressing their head and admiring their little nose and lips and thinking, I really think you are going to be lazy. Lazy and an underachiever. And I hope that you are below average in everything that you do. No, we have great hopes and dreams for our children, right? Some are more realistic than others, but our our sights are set on them living long, joyful, productive, godly lives. We want them to do well in their studies and to get married and have children in that order and get jobs before all of that. (laughs) They will have trials. They will make mistakes along the way. But in the end, nobody looks at their kid and says, aim low and do nothing, child. So what do we do with them? We prepare them. We read to them, we we teach them their, their numbers and letters and how to tie their shoes and get dressed on their own, and then we have other kids so they have siblings to teach them all of those things for us so we can take a break. We spend a lot of time as parents preparing them and getting them ready for what's to come and to fulfill what we hope will be the outcome of their lives. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel, and I want you to pay attention to a few things that Matthew brings out as purpose statements. You see, while you and I have hopes and dreams for our children, and we have no idea how all of that's going to turn out for them, for Jesus, everything that he would be Everything that he was was determined before the foundations of the world, and everything he would fulfill was determined in meticulous detail. And everything he came to do was fulfilled perfectly. But as we look at Jesus' birth, we see three main reasons that Jesus was born, and we see them here in verses 18 through 25. So let's read together. which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, the first thing I want us to see in our text this morning is that Jesus was born to live a perfect life. I read an interview on Friday in the New York Times with author Nicholas Kristof. He was interviewing Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. It was a fantastic interview. Tim Keller is a master of responding to the secular worldview, and we see that. As he uh, deals with this question, Christoph asked Keller, he said, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Since this is the Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief, or can I mix and match? And here's how Keller responds. He says, if something is truly integral to a body of thought... You can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion can't be whatever we desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace and I come out and say climate change is a hoax, they will ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that, that there has to be some boundaries for dissent, or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization. And they'd be right. It's the same thing with any religious faith. And here's what's at the heart of Keller's response. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is essential, because the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ is essential. And without a virgin birth, we don't have a sinless Savior. And without a sinless Savior, we have no hope. Matthew tells us in verse 18, before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This, Matthew explains in verse 23, fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah promised. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there are several reasons why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, but most importantly is that if Jesus were born of two human parents... There's no real way that we could ever actually think of how it would be that he was exempted from the guilt of Adam's sin and how he could become the new Adam of the human race. With a virgin birth, Jesus being sinless isn't just an arbitrary act of our saying, well, Jesus was born in every way like we are, but he was sinless because we say so. No, rather we can say what verse 18 says, that Jesus was placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit and therefore could be born sinless. Now, Jesus' sinlessness is so vital to our salvation that it was essential that he be, be conceived in the womb and born as a man in a supernatural way. And otherwise. He would carry in himself the very same sinful nature that all of us have from the beginning. David reminds us in Psalm 51, not that we become sinful, not that we are polluted by our environment, but that we are conceived in sin. Our very nature from conception is that we are sinful because of the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve. Our nature is sin. So Jesus had to be a man, but he had to be a sinless man, and therefore he had to be born supernaturally of a virgin. Simply stated, the human race alone could not produce its own redeemer. And that shows us that our sin and guilt are profound, and so a Savior must come from outside of us. And because of Jesus being born without sin… He was able from the very first second to live his life perfectly. He was a baby like all of the little babies that we have grown very accustomed to around here. He needed his diapers changed. He needed to be nursed. He needed to be swaddled. It wasn't like Jesus was in Mary's arms looking at her and looking into her face and thinking, Lady, you are so blessed to be holding me right now. No, his thoughts were baby thoughts, whatever those are. And he needed to learn how to roll over. He needed to learn how to sit up and to crawl and to walk. And yet all of that happened in sinless perfection because his nature was and is unlike yours and mine. He's a 100% God. He's 100% man. We call that, theologically, we call that the hypostatic union. Now, Jesus is not part God and part man. He isn't sometimes God and sometimes man. He isn't more God than man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. How does that work? I don't know. But we cannot give an inch on Jesus' deity. He is very God of very God. We cannot give an inch on Jesus' humanity. He was as much of a person as you or I are right now. Jesus' deity and humanity are equally significant and necessary to understand and see in their fullness. R. Kent Hughes writes this, Truly human... The son subjected himself to his own creation and its physical laws, its ups and downs. He would experience the development of human reason and language. He would be taught things he did not know. He walked like a baby before he walked like a man. He thought and talked like a baby before he thought and talked like a man. The growing pains of the Son of God were just as real for him as they were for us. Harold Best says the only difference was that Jesus did his learning, growing and maturing sinlessly and perfectly, but this does not mean he was an instant learner. You see, Jesus had to learn to read. He had to learn the scriptures. He had to put in the hard work to understand and grow and mature in his life. He had to learn to be a carpenter from his earthly father, Joseph. Jesus Christ lived with a human body and mind and soul with all of their limitations except for sin. And that's really one of the wonders of his birth, isn't it? The omnipotent, omnipresent omniscient God became man as a baby. We can think of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God prior to the Incarnation as a symphony full of complexity, full of power, so many different elements, so many different areas of magnificence carried over a great expanse. But when He became human, He became like a folk tune. Simple, shortened, And in this, he lost nothing of his Godhead, his eternal character, his attributes, his his absolute purity, his changeless excellence. He was still the symphony, the eternal Son of God. But as a folk tune, a, a real man, he fully entered into the human situation in a way that all could understand. Now, of course, no symphony is infinite, Each has its genesis somewhere, while Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. But the picture, I hope, is clear. The fullness of the complexity and variety and wonder and majesty of God exists in the simplicity and normalcy of a human man. John explained it in his gospel account. You're all familiar with these words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as to the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was completely necessary. Because in order for Jesus to be an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf before the Father, He had to do what we cannot do. He had to fulfill God's law to perfection. You and I can't not only not do that, we can't even come close to doing that. But Jesus fulfilled every aspect of God's law perfectly, as required, so that we need not stand before God on our own works or on our own attempts at righteousness, but can instead say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Why? Because all other ground is sinking sand. Friend, if your hope for heaven rests upon your own good works or assuming you're a good person, I want you to know that God's standard is not that you're good or not that you try your hardest to do your best. God's standard is perfection. And even the best person you can think of in your life will admit, if they're honest, that they're not perfect. And we all know that's true because God has written that on all of our hearts to know, but it's God's standard that we must live up to. So what can we do about that? Because you and I know it's not possible on our own. We need a virgin-born Savior to stand in our place because only he was able to live the life required by God, and he stands in the place of needy sinners who have faith in him. Do you trust in your own works? I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ, whose life was perfect, whose work was enough that you might live." Well, the second thing we see in our text in Matthew is that Jesus was born so that we could have fellowship with him. The God-man, Jesus Christ, coming into the world, taking on human flesh is what we call the incarnation. The word incarnation comes from a Latin word which means being in the flesh. So when we speak of the incarnation, we are simply referencing the historical event of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. We sing about it in songs like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know the words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, the incarnate deity. Jesus is the deity, veiled, covered in flesh. In Philippians 2, 7, the Apostle Paul explains that Jesus took on flesh, and he wrote that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, was again, fully God, fully man, but the essence of the incarnation is that Jesus was truly human in every sense of the word. He was born of a woman under the law and he was at all points in his earthly life tempted just like you and I are tempted. Yet, he never succumbed to that temptation. He never... (laughs) went into that area of sin. He was without sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Of course, we can all identify That God would have been perfectly just to create us and just leave us to ourselves. He could have done that. He's the potter. We are the clay. No lump of clay has the right to question the potter. But God didn't do that, did He? Not only did he not do that, he came in human flesh to identify with his own creation in such a way that we don't just have a knowledge of God as a far off being that dishes out orders and demands that we can't fulfill, but instead we have a personal, loving, gracious and merciful God that came to be with us in every way. Again, we see this in the prophecy of Isaiah quoted in in verse 23. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, you, you can talk to the adherents of any world religion, and something they're not going to talk about is having a personal relationship with God. Being in fellowship or communion with God. Because apart from Christ... That doesn't happen. Apart from Christ, there is no relationship with God because apart from Christ, there is no concept and no reality of God with us. Emmanuel. But God in His infinite wisdom wrapped Himself in flesh to dwell among us that we might know Him and love Him and have communion, intimate communion with Him. Amazingly, Philippians 2.6 tells us, Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count, do not regard or consider or think equality with God a thing to be grasped. And equality with God in this context literally means being equal with, equal with God in quality. So here we have Jesus, very God of very God. In every sense, equal with God, refusing to cling to that equality, refusing to grasp and hold on to that equality, refusing to take the privileges and the rights that go along with that equality, refusing to clutch those wonderful heavenly glories that he had known from eternity past. In other words, rather than clinging to his heavenly glory, rather than clinging to his heavenly privileges, he rid himself of them. He emptied himself of the privileges and the prerogatives and the rights that were his by his divine nature. And he refused to cling to what was rightfully his. He refused to hold on to his own advantage, but emptied himself for the advantage of others that we might know him and love him and have fellowship with him. And what that means for us today is that we have one in heaven who knows us intimately. One who cares for us. One who lived this life enduring the same trials and the same difficulties that we face each day. And he has promised to be our mediator before the Father as the one who can fully identify with us. So you see, Jesus doesn't condemn us in our weakness. He pities us, and He sympathizes with us. Christian, did you have a difficult week of sin? Did you succumb to your temptation? Was your intimacy with the Lord lacking this week? Jesus Christ is in heaven, and He knows, and He cares. No one understands you like Jesus. Are you drawing near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help you in your times of need? The incarnation made that possible. The birth of our Savior made it possible that you could do it. He will give you the greatest counsel, and like any earthly counselor, He can transform your heart as well. Turn to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who can truly sympathize with you in your weaknesses. Well, Jesus lived a perfect life and dwelt among us. We have fellowship with him, but none of this really matters if our final point is not true. Jesus Christ was born to die. If Jesus didn't die, nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't die, we take the penalty for our own sins and we have no hope. You see, the very hope of Jesus' birth is Jesus' death. From before the foundation of the earth, the plan for the Son of God was to die. God the Father made an eternal covenant with God the Son that we call the covenant of redemption. And the covenant agreement was that the Son would take on human flesh. He would voluntarily embrace death in exchange for the redemption of a people who would be made into his bride, the church. You see this exchange. Jesus Christ was born to die in order that he might receive the gift of the church. And really, his birth actually makes very little sense or at least very little difference if we don't consider his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. J.A. Packer says the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. It's all a cohesive unit. It comes together. Now, understandably in the text, we see that Joseph was a little bit concerned about what was going on. I mean, it makes sense, right? The guy's about to marry this woman. She shows up. By the way, I have something to tell you. Uh, I'm pregnant. And knowing that it was not his doing, I think Joseph's concerns were legitimate. But the Lord was kind to Joseph, not leaving him to wonder and to ask questions, but he sends an angel to him to proclaim, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this, brothers and sisters, this right here encapsulates the primary work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. Yes, in order to do that, he had to be born. He had to live a perfect life. He had to be in fellowship with with us. But in order to do it, he had to die. Without his death, you and I have no eternal life. God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 explains, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus took on flesh and blood so that by dying he might destroy Satan and he might deliver mankind from slavery to sin and to death. That was the primary purpose of Jesus' humanity. This is the ultimate overarching purpose of the Incarnation. Without Jesus coming to die, any other implication of his life, any other implication of him coming in the way that he came is useless. Now, of course, Jesus didn't deserve to die. That's the point. But it was right that he did die. It's the great exchange. My sins are placed on him. His righteousness is credited to me. This is the beautiful essence at the center of the gospel. My sins for his righteousness. But if it didn't happen, if Jesus was like every other man and he just died a normal death, we would continue to walk in bondage to sin and death. Brothers and sisters, this should make all of us very thankful. This should make us incredibly grateful for who Christ is and what Christ has done in fulfillment of what the Father sent him to do for us. Now, do, do we have to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ every year? No. God doesn't require that of us. There are plenty of faithful, godly Christians throughout history and today that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that love the fact that He is the incarnate deity, He was born to die, and they don't celebrate Christmas. And that's okay. But just the same, it's good and right that we spend time each year to stop and to contemplate the mystery of redemption coming through a babe who would give the greatest thing that anyone could give that we might live with him forever. And so in that regard, like Charles Spurgeon said once, I wish that we had 52 Christmases a year. And that's the point, isn't it? That each and every day of our lives, we ought to contemplate the reality of Jesus Christ being who he was and is and doing what he did and has done for us, living below any standard that we could possibly imagine that we might have life with him. C.S. Lewis described it like this. He said, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend, He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seedbed of the humanity which he himself created. But he goes down to come up again and bring ruined sinners up with him. Lewis says, one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with the splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. And he concludes by saying, the doctrine of the incarnation is emphatically at the center of Christianity, that the Son of God came down. No seed ever fell so far from a tree into so dark and cold a soil than the Son of God did. Jesus came from on high that he could be born down low, that he might sink down into the depths of death on a cross for our sake. I wonder if you've ever noticed when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he called out to the Father, what was the response? Silence. you know, solitary confinement is torture. It's torture because we're made in the image of God, and we need words like we need food. Solitary confinement is torture, and on the cross, Jesus Christ got cosmic, ultimate solitary confinement. He got the silence of God. Why? It's what we deserve. But Jesus got the silence that we deserve. He got the punishment we deserve so that we could get the word that He deserved. What is that word? That word from God that comes down and says, This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart crying, This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And if that word comes to you in the center of your being, your heart is now filled with a sense of the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for you in being born to die that he might save his people from their sins. So, brothers and sisters and friends, today and every day, I hope we are all mindful of this great truth. And particularly today, as many of you are going to go home and open gifts from one another, remember this. The greatest gift that you could ever receive is Jesus Christ who died. And without him and without that, nothing else matters at all. Without him, we have no hope. But with him, we have all that we could ever need. With him, we have far more than we could ever think to ask for. With him, we have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And I pray that God would fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise this Lord's Day as we consider what God has done for us from on high to be mindful of us down low. We are a blessed and very rich people in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that Jesus Christ put on flesh to live the life that we have no ability and no chance of living on our own. We thank you that in your wisdom that as you unfolded all that would happen throughout history here on earth, that you determined that Jesus would live for us, fulfilling all of your law, so that we might rest not on our own works, not in our own good deeds, but upon Christ alone, whose righteousness is our only hope. And so we pray, O God, as a thankful people, that today as we think upon Jesus who stoops so low to lift us so high that you have chosen to call us your very own that we would be adopted as sons and daughters of God that we might know life and we might know life abundantly as we live for him and with him the author and finisher of our faith, who lived for us, who died for us, and who secured the great hope of the resurrection for us. And so we pray today and every day, O God, that you would fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving for who Christ is and what Christ has done that we might live. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.